2: Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Elizabeth Anderson, the author of Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. Based on the prestigious Tanner Lectures delivered at Princeton University's Center for Human Values, private government... In private governments anderson explores why our workplaces are authoritarian private governments and why we can't see it even when one in four american workers describes their workplace as a dictatorship yet that number almost certainly would be higher if we recognized employers for what they are private governments with sweeping authoritarian power over our lives many employers minutely regulate workers' speech clothing and manners on the job And employers often extend their authority to the off-duty lives of workers who can be fired for their political speech, recreational activities, diet, and almost anything else employers care to govern. In this compelling book, Elizabeth Anderson examines why, despite all this, we continue to talk as if free markets make workers free, and she proposes a better way to think about the workplace, opening up space for discovering how workers can enjoy real freedom. Elizabeth Anderson is Arthur F. Thurneau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan and specializes in political philosophy, ethics, and feminist philosophy. She is the author of The Imperatives of Integration, Values, Value Ethics in Economics, and Material Spirituality in Modernist Women's Writing. Elizabeth Anderson, welcome to the Nubex Network.
1: Ah. It's great to talk to you, but you have to drop that last book title because that must be a different Elizabeth Anderson. Oh, my apologies.
2: <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Don't believe uh, everything you read on Google Books. So uh, before we delve into the specific arguments advanced in your book, I'd like to ask first, what brings you to this project?
1: I've always been interested in work since college. Um And the story behind that is kind of interesting because I was raised in a libertarian household, free markets, free people. And that was what I came to college believing. And I majored in economics. I was going to major in economics, but I decided to take a philosophy course. And in that course, we read Karl Marx's 1844 manuscripts, which are all about the nature of work uh, during the industrial revolution. He gave a blistering critique of uh, the alienation of work for ordinary workers. And I realized that libertarianism had essentially nothing to say about how workers spend uh, the great proportion of their waking hours. That this was just a missing piece of libertarian discussion. And it moved me to consider further What should be done about the fact that work, the experience of work uh, is really a lousy experience for millions and millions of workers and to consider why that's so.
2: So then let's then let's jump right in. So in in the second chapter of the book and and, uh, so we're going to kind of start in the middle, why private governments or or maybe even the more evocative phrase that you use these communist dictatorships in our midst?
1: Yeah, well, the communist dictatorships part is just a little bit of a tease for libertarians. <laughs> well, let me explain. A government is private by definition if it's unaccountable to the governed. It's treated as the private property of uh, the ruler. So I allude to, you know, Louis XIV, I am the state right? The state's just my private property <laughs> and I'm going to rule it. And the people I govern have no say in the matter. That's what makes government private. It's that the rulers are unaccountable to the ruled. It's, it, it, so to speak, it's none of the business of the governed to have any say or even opinions about the rules to which they're subject. And Corporations today are little private governments and even communist governments because the government in question, namely the firm, owns the means of production. And it's through that ownership that they also exercise dictatorial power over workers.
2: So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so you engage with the with theories of the firm. and And I wonder if you could explain to our listeners a little bit about that.
1: Yes, so I want to put this in historical context, because in America in particular, the ideal for work, the ideally free worker is self-employed. It's somebody who owns their own capital and is their own boss. And that has always had a very deep appeal for Americans back to pioneer days. You go out West, you stake out your own claim, and you're running your own farm. You're your own boss. Lincoln appealed to that in his anti-slavery campaign of 1860, his presidential campaign. And today, the allure of self-employment is really profound because that does embody a conception of individual freedom. But of course, the vast majority of workers in America are not self-employed. We do work under bosses, uh, and. It's the experience of unfreedom in that situation that I'm focusing on in my book, Private Government.
2: So in sort of thinking about our, our talk today, uh, I was thinking back to, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, the Jeffrey Eugenides book, uh, Middlesex uh, came out. I think it's almost 20 years old now. Uh, he has a, a, a wonderful set piece in there where uh, the, one of the main characters goes to work for the Ford Motor Company. Uh, you know, it's, it's set in Detroit, so that's not terribly surprising. And there's a moment where something at the Ford Motor Company called the Sociology Department visits the home of these Greek immigrants. And it's the, this, um, this moment where you know, the vaunted $5 a day and and these workers from the sociology department say, "Well, that's great, but we're going to make sure that you're living the way we want you to be living before you get the five dollars." Uh, that yes, is that the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here,
1: right? Yes. So that was a real thing that Ford Motor Company did, and they would yeah. make sure that people that the workers, you know, were using bathtubs correctly. Yeah. And eating American food.
2: Not eating garlic.
1: You know, it's incredible. Now, of course, we don't have in most cases the same detailed supervision of people's private lives as back then. Nevertheless, employers retain the power to fire employees if they don't like how they're living, if they don't if they don't approve of a worker's lifestyle off duty, they could be fired for that, for their recreational activities. You know, some people enjoy smoking, drinking, maybe smoking a little pot on the weekends, and you could easily be fired for that. A huge percentage of American workers get regularly tested for drugs in their system, and that could include marijuana. You, you might be totally sober on Monday if you smoked a joint on, on Saturday, but they'll still show up in a test that you that you smoked. Sure. And he could be fired.
2: I, I remember when, you know, when there was still such a thing as a, as Blockbuster, they used to do a hair test uh, that that would look for traces of THC. Apparently, it stays in your hair longer than than any place else. And, and they would sample hair. And I, th- I always thought, well, isn't that wonderful that the person renting me a video isn't on drugs or hasn't been in the last month?
1: Uh, well, you know, it's pretty ridiculous. Addiction is a very grave problem, but throwing addicts out of work. Is <laughs> no way to deal with addiction. Sure. I think, and the thing is, employers are entitled to ensure that the workers are attentive to their duties while they're on the job. But you can do that through simple observation. You don't have to test them,
2: right? Or, or even, or even threaten to fire them. I should think, unless you know, as you said, if it, there's a difference between on the job and what's going on at home.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: So uh, so you begin the book with um, describing when markets were left. So let me ask, uh, when were markets left and, and what do we mean by left in this particular context?
1: Ah, oh, yes. So by left, I mean free market ideology was once on the left part of the uh, political spectrum from left to right. And the reason for that, that it was in contrast with, a more aristocratic or lordly system of economic organization where, you know, your landlord would rule over you. (laughs) And the thought was that free markets, this is Adam Smith's argument, uh, the landlord class, the aristocrats in England, pretty much owned all the land in England, about 30,000 families in a population of 10 or 11 million. In Smith's day, owned virtually all the productive land in England, and so people didn't really have any choice but to kowtow out to whatever the Lord told them, and they were under the Lord's government. Uh, but free markets offered a different opportunity for people, as Smith narrated it. The rise of commercial society uh, enabled peasants to leave. Uh, the land of their landlord moved to the cities and become, you know, tradesmen, manufacturers, bakers, <laughs> butchers, and so forth. Uh, and, and that liberated them because now they weren't dependent on a single lord for everything. They had lots of different customers, right? They're selling to lots of different people. Maybe they're running a tavern or something. And that prospect that markets would liberate people, that commercial society would liberate people was very deep in uh, the 18th century. You can see on the continent as well, Condorcet, the great enlightenment thinker also held that view. On top of that, the picture was that the most efficient worker was the worker who kept 100% of the fruits of their labor And that would happen if they owned their own business. So the Yeoman farmer was the champion of agriculture uh, in England. They're working really hard and attentive to the details of their business, whereas the lords are just kicking back, not paying attention because all they're interested in is the revenue stream from their rents that they can use to, you know, for lavish parties and fox hunting, (laughs) maintaining their horses and things like that. They they don't really care about the business, so they're not running it very efficiently. Smith argued that free markets, if you really had free markets, um, you would also have to change the, the rules of property, which were rigged to maintain these dynastic estates. And if the Lords were subject to competition, yeoman farmers would basically, as the more efficient farmers, Uh, would force the breakup under competition of the Lord's Estates into smaller plots that individual farmers could then buy. And that vision was never realized in England, but something close to that happened in the free states of the United States. And all of Europe in those days was looking to the United States as a place where this vision of, you know, market freedom would arise. Because in fact, if you don't have slavery and land is widely available to individuals, everybody's going to stake their own claim and become self-employed. And that was a vision simultaneously of freedom because everybody's their own boss, but also of equality. Because if everybody's self-employed, they cannot work more capital than they can personally work with their own hands. And so everybody's basically equal because there's nobody's capacity to labor is that much larger than anyone else's that they could accumulate a vast estate. So, and, and that,
2: so that ideal sort of, sort of, uh, brings us to the idea of, you know, the notions of egalitarianism. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your book discusses the levelers and, um, and, and what was their contribution to the, uh, this uh, egalitarian ideal?
1: Yes. So the Levellers were uh, uh, an egalitarian social movement in 17th century England during their civil war. They demanded constitutional change. Essentially, they wanted to get rid of the king and the House of Lords and have a regime of equality under the law. And that included also uh, uh, an ideal of free property. They were free traders. Uh, They were interested in supporting the claims of yeoman farmers and independent craftsmen. And in particular, they wanted to get out from underneath the regulations of the guilds. And the reason for this is that the guilds, they're kind of organizations of everybody in the same trade, which promulgated rules restraining when and where you could manufacture particular goods. Maybe a town would have a monopoly on manufacturing and selling a certain uh, class of goods, like leather goods or woolens or something like that. And then all of the small tradesmen would have to obey the regulations of the large tradesmen who, of course, rigged the rules in their own favor. So the levelers wanted out from underneath the oppressive regulations of the guilds so that independent businessmen could make choices for themselves. Some of the levelers were also feminists and wanted rights for women as well, although most of them, as is typical for egalitarian social movements you know, of that era, they're mostly thinking of equality among men.
2: But, But in this case, at least not just property men right these are uh, again the the sort of uh uh, what's the right word um independent
1: uh. yeah i mean they wouldn't have large property but they would have small property right like you know (laughs) and the idea was that you would open up as you open up competition and destroy monopoly there would be more opportunities for men to acquire a small business, build a small business for themselves, and be their own bosses. And even for other people who wouldn't have their own business, such as sailors, for instance, free trade would increase uh, commerce, international commerce, so you'd have more opportunities to be a sailor. And back in those days, sailors on commercial vessels uh, were entitled to a share of the profits from the voyage. So they did have a kind of capital interest in the voyage. They weren't just paid a wage. Uh, And and some of them, you know, their share could be significant.
2: I guess it would have to be. It's kind of a risky occupation.
1: Very risky. That's how come they were entitled to a share of the profits.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, not easy work. Um, So uh, you describe that. So this is kind of uh, this is where this idea takes us. And then you describe the Industrial Revolution in your book as a cataclysm. Um, And and it's in this section that you introduce the idea of wage slavery. uh, And I've always found that to be a particularly, particularly useful term. Can you talk about that and and sort of describe how it's different from the idea of free labor?
1: Yes, exactly. So as I as I just argued, go, even going back to the Levelers, you see an ideal of free labor as you know the most free workers, the fully free workers, are the self-employed, and that vision was carried over to the United States and most fully, re- more fully realized in the United States than anywhere else. Certainly, much more than in Europe. But the industrial revolution just demolished that picture that free markets would generate a system of nearly universal self-employment. And the reason for that had to do with economies of scale. So the big factories just were vastly more uh, efficient and could put out almost any manufactured good uh, much, much cheaper than an independent craftsman. This had to do as Adam Smith pointed out with a fine grained division of labor uh, uh, and mass production techniques. So what happened is when the scale of production increases then you have many workers under the same roof and under the same authority of the boss. And that's the reason why the industrial revolution just shattered this dream that free markets would deliver fully free labor for everyone. Now, you mentioned the term wage slavery, which was commonly used uh, by labor advocates during the Industrial Revolution to explain how degraded uh, the conditions of work were for workers uh, during the Industrial Revolution. And I just want to point out that wage slavery, that concept wasn't um, simply used as a metaphor for chattel slavery. That... The vocabulary of slavery was highly influenced by the Republican tradition of political theory, thats small r Republican, which defined uh, the condition of slavery slavery as being at someone else's mercy or subject to another person's will, Uh, arbitrary will, arbitrary and unaccountable will And that's precisely what was happening with the employment relationship because workers just had to take orders from their boss and their boss was not accountable to them. They could order them to work under very dangerous conditions, for instance, or unhealthy conditions. And there was nothing, the workers had no say in the matter. (laughs) Right, and that's how this, this vocabulary of wage slavery isn't merely metaphorical. It fit into a generic Republican conception of slavery as not limited to being the property of another person, but simply being forced to take orders uh, uh, without having a say over the content of those orders and without being able to hold accountable the people who are issuing those orders.
2: So then let's talk a little bit about this, this idea of um being compelled to, to do something and, and not having the, the boss be accountable. Um, you talk about four strategies that have been employed to sort of protect the lives and interests of the govern in in theories of government and, and how those can be applied to the employment relationship. Can, can we kind of walk through those four?
1: Uh, uh, sorry, could you just repeat that again?
2: Yeah, I'm sorry. It, it's um, there. You suggest there's four four different strategies that um, in, in governmental theory that uh, are used to protect the lives and the interests of people who are being governed. Um,
1: oh right, yes. Okay. Right. So the classic libertarian strategy for protecting workers is just to enhance enhance the power of workers to quit. Uh, And the idea is, look, if you're free to walk away from the job, then you'll be free under that job or in that job. So in
2: theory, theory, when when, for instance, most workers go to work, they are at will employees. Correct. And and so if that means that, hey, anytime they want, they don't have to give two weeks notice. They don't have to worry about violating a contract. They just walk away.
1: Correct. They can quit on the spot. and They can be fired on the spot and they can quit on the spot. Right. And, you know, there, it's there's, the power to exit is an important right. I reject the libertarian view that that is all that workers need to be free at work. But it's still very, very important, as we can see from the repeated attempts of employers to restrict the ability of workers to leave with their human capital intact. So. More and more frequently these days, employers are forcing workers to sign non-compete agreements. And that means that they're not allowed to exit and uh, either set up their own shop performing the same work or to hire themselves out to a different employer performing the same kind of work that would be in competition with their former employer. And some of these non-competes have have been extended to absurd extents uh, where even, you know, sandwich shops are preventing uh, the workers making the sandwiches from working at competing sandwich shops.
2: Yeah, which is just kind of insane to think that, you know, I learned how to do something at Jimmy John's and now I can't go to Subway and, and sort of apply the skills that I've learned.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous, but that's what's happening, and it, and it, it and people are very intimidated by that sometimes, uh, by the threat of being sued.
2: Sure. So, so that's one the the idea that we can that we can always exit uh, the employment relationship. What are what are the other three?
1: So we can also think about a regime of constitutional rights for workers uh, within the firm. And to a certain extent, some of those rights are sort of present. So it is true that under American law, workers do have a right to complain about working conditions. And that's guaranteed under the law. However, in practice, the right to complain about work is a little bit of a dead letter because workers who complain are summarily fired, very commonly, And they don't really have much of a recourse. Their lost wages are not enough to make it worthwhile for a lawyer to defend them in court. It's very difficult to sue an employer. Uh, Most workers now are under mandatory arbitration agreements. And the arbitrators uh, being under contract with the firm know that they will lose their contract, their, their arbitration contract, if they deliver too many decisions that favor the workers. Uh, So workers really don't have much of a recourse, even when their rights to speak out and complain uh, are being violated. For example, if we just take the subset of uh, abusive working conditions that involve sexual harassment, the vast majority of workers who are sexually harassed or believe that they've been sexually harassed do not file a complaint with their employer out of fear of retaliation. And the reason for that is that those who do complain do face retaliation at extremely high rates. Uh, I think the last survey found that something like 70% or 80% of workers who file a sexual harassment complaint face retaliation. So people who wanna keep their jobs, just keep their mouth shut, even though they do have a formal legal right to complain, they know that it's really an empty right. A third possibility for defending uh, workers' interests at work is regulation. So we do have regulatory agencies out there that are supposed to be defending workers. A classic example of that is OSHA, which is supposed to be issuing regulations that um, protect workers' interests in safety and health at work. But we've also found that uh, regulation has its own deficiencies. Uh, regulatory agencies are looking at working conditions from afar and often aren't sensitive to uh, local variations in the conditions of work uh, uh, that workers might be aware of, but that are hard to see from a bureaucrat's point of view. Uh, you know, the variety of conditions under which workers work. Across America is extremely, it's just very, very diverse. We have millions of establishments, right? It's hard to keep track of them all. Uh, And that's a reason uh, to empower workers at work uh, to shape the conditions under which they work. And that really is the fourth uh, uh, institution that can help workers get better conditions at work and to exercise some freedom at work. And that is, involves democratizing the workplace. That is giving workers a voice, representation, power, votes about how the workplace is organized, how uh, the tasks required to get the product or service Uh, delivered, are divided among workers in the firm, how hours are allocated, uh, conditions of health and safety at work, and so forth. Workers should be able to have a say in those matters at their particular workplace. Uh, And that's what workplace democracy is all about.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: The hardest of the of the four things to talk about, because even it, one of the issues with the regulatory environment, as you said, the 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 workplace is so complex um, that that regulations are, are often going to be um, not sensitive to local conditions. Uh, but also there's the fact that uh, the bodies that do regulate the workplace are often understaffed, um, underfunded. They they don't have the authority to do the kind of investigatory work that is necessary, um, and, and so we we kind of call fall back on this fourth thing: the idea of worker voice. Um, how how do and this is a this is maybe a question that's even beyond this conversation. How do we how do we give workers a voice?
1: Right. So of course you know the longstanding ideal for for advocates of workers is uh, enterprises that are collectively owned and managed by the workers themselves. And there are some notable, very successful examples of this. Probably the most famous one is Mondragon in Spain, uh, which has been going for decades. Very successful uh, worker-managed firm. It's kind of a conglomerate. It actually is a big, sprawly kind of enterprise. my view is that while that stands as a kind of ideal and we should certainly reform our laws to make it possible that it's, we have to think about alternative structures because for most workers that really isn't in the cards Uh, you know, accumulating the capital necessary, you know, to uh, set up firms or buy out current shareholders is a tall order. (laughs) Um, And so One thing that I think we should be exploring is uh, co-determination, more robust uh, forms of co-determination, which already exist in places like Germany and uh, France. So under co-determination, the management of the firm is uh, jointly uh, possessed by workers and capital investors. So you have workers who have seats on the board of directors of a corporation. And perhaps even more importantly, uh, there are works councils that regulate the details of work at the level of the factory floor. And those works councils also uh, contain workers so that even the detailed day-to-day operations are managed jointly by workers and representatives of capital investors. Now, if you look at Germany, which has, I think, the most fully developed kind of classic form of co determination, I see some potential and deeper in, uh, development of that model. To a certain degree, it's deteriorated a bit under uh, neoliberal conditions in Germany but I think we could make it more robust and give workers an even stronger voice than what we see in Germany.
2: Although even, even that's going to be, as you said, that, that's going to be resisted. Um, it will
1: be resisted, but one of the great advantages of co-determination is that as Elizabeth Warren has pointed out in a bill that she uh, drafted and sponsored this is something that could be enacted pretty quickly by Congress if you could get, uh, uh, you know, Congress to vote for it. You could just mandate that workers have seats on the board and that workers and that works councils be established at all uh, corporations, and you would condition the granting of a corporate charter on a reorganization of its internal governance to make that possible. So the great advantage of this is that a simple statute could establish co-determination in contrast with our current model of labor unions, uh, which in order to organize a labor union, you have to fight a battle uh, workplace by workplace. You can't even unionize a whole corporation. (laughs) It's entirely fragmented. So like each separate Amazon warehouse would have to get organized separately which is a ridiculous system. <laughs> and it was, in fact, our labor union representation is incredibly weak, precisely because of the extremely high costs of fighting a, an organization battle, uh, workplace by workplace. Uh, and then you'd have to have you know thousands of them for a giant corporation like Amazon. Uh, so unfortunately in the United States labor unions uh, have a, a, a tough road to hoe. And at the same time, we also find that although unions have delivered enormous benefits for workers, uh, that it, it's just, a, it's extremely vulnerable model given how unions work in the United States. It's much more successful labor unions in other countries, uh, especially in Scandinavia, uh, where collective bargaining uh, is sometimes undertaken on a sectoral basis. Like you just have the employers, all the employers in an industry get together with all the unions in an industry on a giant collective bargaining table and hash things out. Um, <clears throat> that's a very successful model, uh, but you know we're pretty far from that in the United States.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, hopefully our listeners won't be aware of this, but you and I had some trouble getting on uh, this morning with the, with the software. And the last time I had that same problem with the software, I was actually talking to David Madland at the Center for American Progress uh, about precisely this issue of sectoral bargaining. Um, and and he, he's recently authored a book, um, arguing really so, very similar things to you, but but from the union perspective, and I think it's odd that uh, for some reason the software gets glitchy as soon as we start talking <laughs> about these things. But not that I'm prone to paranoia. Um, so um, your book concludes uh, with a number of different commentators offering you uh, some um, some challenges to your your thesis. Um, and I, I think I mentioned when we were setting this up that I had the opportunity to assign this book to graduate students, um, and they're, uh, they were absolutely delighted with your response to those commentaries. I think the direct words were, oh, snap. Um, so <laughs> I, I had thinking,
1: great fun replying to my commentators. <laughs> I, I imagine
2: you did. Uh, so... I, there's a, there were there's a lot, of course, going on in those in those commentaries, uh, some, you know, different ideas about history and economics. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to uh, one of the, your interlocutors saying that essentially work isn't all that bad. So I, I was wondering if we could maybe talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, look, you know, that was Tyler Cowan, very distinguished and and, and famous economist. And I, I for one, will say that the academic life, if you have an intellectual bent and you're a tenured professor at a research university, these are about the best working conditions anybody could have and still be a salaried worker and not (laughs) self-employed.
2: Stanley Aronowitz calls it the, the last good job in America.
1: Yeah, no, it's totally awesome because you have extraordinary amounts of autonomy. You know, you pretty much decide the hours of work outside of your teaching schedule, right? You set your own office hours, right? You can work whenever you want to. Um, Enormous, you know, flexibility in the content of work. You decide what you're going to teach and how you're going to teach it. It's an unbelievable blast to be engaging with young adults, right? I mean, it's just, it. It's It's a good gig. Sorry?
2: It's a good gig.
1: It's a great gig. It's a great gig. But of course, very few people have it. And even the majority of academics are, are even close. treated as, you know, disposable labor who are paid per course as lecturers under conditions of extreme precarity and uh, low, very, very low pay and often no benefits. There are some people with PhDs who are living out of their cars because they can't afford the rent.
2: Yeah, no. And, or you know, there are there are stories in the press all the time of, you know, people who or there was just one in The Guardian where uh, a woman with a Ph.D. uh, was living in a tent. Uh, She was she was essentially camping and then commuting to uh, her her job as a lecturer.
1: Yeah. I mean, this happens. So, yes. So I think Tyler is in no position to talk about how work is so great because he, like I have. Like the best jobs that employees could possibly have with very light supervision of our bosses. You know, my department chair just says, keep on going, Liz. (laughs) Right. There's no micromanagement happening um, for tenured professors.
2: No, for the most part, that's true. Although, you know, I will also say, you know, when we're talking about um, the idea of co determination, uh, the faculty union here just proposed to our board of trustees, that faculty have a a seat on the board. Uh, Our students have a seat on the board. It's a non-voting membership, but uh, to this point, faculty yet have to have any voice in the governance of the university.
1: Well, that is actually an important point. And I'm glad you raised that because uh, what we're seeing today is the corporatization of universities. And a lot of that is overtly hostile to uh, to the workers. And what that means basically, it is an erosion of professional standards. So academics, uh, you know, we're a profession and professions are supposed to be self-governing, especially with respect to their own professional standards. Uh, but more and more of the corporatization of the university is eroding uh, that kind of collective self-government
2: and and with all the consequences you just said, with more and more of the instruction of students being turned over to to people who are making pennies on the dollar to to perform that work.
1: Yes, yes. And of course, you know, there's the other side of that coin, which is that superstar academics get paid Mm -hmm. amounts that vastly exceed what they would have to be paid in in order to induce them to perform the labor. (laughs) yeah, yeah. <laughs> wild inequality within academia it's it's not like i have to say it's still smaller than corporate america but, uh, you yes. know your college president is not making 230 times the amount of uh you know no. the professor okay. class but yeah no, but inequality really, is is still widening
2: yeah uh so dr anderson what uh what's next
1: so i am about to put finishing touches on a new big book on the history of the Protestant work ethic from the 17th century to the present. Oh. And uh, it's just a rip roaring, you know, roll through the history of political economy. So the Puritan ministers of the 17th century invented the work ethic. And what I show is that it had a very profound impact on a political economy. Uh, in England and the rest of the capitalist world uh, from the 17th century on. Now, of course, the greatest work that was written about this matter is uh, Max Weber's, uh, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, Weber being uh, a leading light in sociology. Uh, And he argued that the Protestant work ethic got secularized over time And became nothing more than a rationale for uh, the exploitation of workers uh, and their subjection to endless dreary drudgery in an iron cage for the profit of capitalists. And basically what I argue is that Weber was only half right, (laughs) that that was one development of the work ethic, but that what he overlooked. uh, And when you go back to the original Puritan theologians who invented the work ethic, you see another side of the story that Weber overlooked. Those original Puritans, their biggest enemies by far were the idle rich, the mm. lazy landlords, right? And the work ethic was built to undermine their claims to superiority. After all, they're just living off other people's rents. The sure. Puritans called them drones in the nest right? Yeah. What are those useless drones doing? Well, they're not doing any work for society. They're just eating the honey and having sex with the queen.
2: (laughs) Not in that order, but
1: yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, uh, they just hated the lazy landlords and they wanted to extol the workers. And indeed, if you read them carefully, you see that they are insistent that in the division of labor, everyone is doing their part to promote the well-being of society. And, and the, the Puritans were the inventors of utilitarianism, the idea that we all have a duty to promote social welfare. And uh, the worst people were the people who just, you know, lived off the work of others without doing their part to contribute, <clears throat> assuming they were able to contribute because the Puritans also believed in a very strong duty of charity and understood that people who were too old, sick and firm, and so forth might be unable to contribute in those ways. And we still had to do everything we can to preserve human life and protect it, even the helpless among us. So I trace that more positive idea that workers deserve to be honored for their work no matter how lowly or mean it might be, and hence ought to be honored, treated with dignity, given a living wage, supplied with safe working conditions. These are all pronouncements found in the Puritans who invented the work ethic. And I trace that idea through the history of political economy, through Locke, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, the Ricardian socialists, even Karl Marx was deeply influenced hmm. by the Protestant work ethic. One of my favorite discoveries was reading at Marx's very earliest published work in the collected works of Marx. We have his Abitur. This is the final exam he wrote to graduate from high school. Hmm. And the topic. Essay that he had to write on was on a young man's choice of occupation or vocation. And in that essay, he almost precisely reproduces uh, uh, a famous sermon by Robert Sanderson, uh, delivered in the 17th century. Sanderson was a Puritan theologian, (laughs) in which Sanderson discusses the same question. If we all have a duty to work, we all must find our calling or our vocation, the specialized occupation that we're going to dedicate our working lives to. And Sanderson's sermon was about how we figure that out. And he said, you figure this out by looking at your talents, looking at the work that you enjoy, uh, um, and seeing how you could help society by working in that way. And out of that comes precisely Marx's ideal of unalienated labor. <laughs> you already see it in high school, sure. and he developed it in the 1844 manuscripts. What work ought to be for workers is work that develops and enhances one's own talents in the course of promoting other people's welfare in ways that are recognized and appreciated by the person being served and by society at large. That's all it is. You find it in the Puritans, you find it in Marx and you find it in Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill. <laughs> They're all on the same page. Marx is actually a latecomer to this discourse. You're right. A- and uh, <clears throat> it came straight out of the Puritans and ended up, I argue in my book, with social democracy. Uh, by way uh, of Edward Bernstein, who pretty much invented social democracy as a kind of response uh, to ultra-Orthodox Marxism, which he repudiated. And he was a member of Germany's Social Democratic Party and was really decisive in, in arguing for a shift of orientation of the German Social Democratic Party away from revolution and a kind of class sectarianism to, a view, to something closer to the original Puritan view that all of society should be seen as working together to promote the welfare of every member of society.
2: The common good.
1: The common good, exactly. And so don't think that you should be making class warfare, you know, with like the petty bourgeoisie, the, you know, the small shop owners and things like that. We're all in it together (laughs) and we can form a society in, in which everyone's welfare is enhanced. And that was the ideal of social democracy. And I show how it carries forth these original aspirations of the Puritans, and hence how the work ethic should not be seen just as an ideology that consigns us to drudgery as neoliberal ideology would have it, uh, but also as something that has a, offers a positive hope and resources for uh, uh, reimagining what work could be and how it can be organized in the interests of workers themselves, as well as the broader society.
2: Well, that sounds exciting. Um, I, I'm and this is coming out soon.
1: Well, it's under contract at Cambridge University Press. I have small revisions to make. <laughs> I'll probably take about a month doing it, but of course, now I'm in the midst of teaching. And so I have to punt that to the summer.
2: Uh, we'll look forward to We'll work forward when that comes out. Um, Elizabeth Anderson, thank you for your time today. And, and really thank you for this book. Um, it's, it's terrific. Um, Once again, my guest today has been Elizabeth Anderson, the author of Private Governments, How Employees Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It from Princeton University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the Education Channel of the New Books Network.
1: Thanks. Pleasure to talk to you.